You're listening to an episode of Welcome to the Teacher's Lounge, the podcast dedicated to honest conversations with educators about what they do and, more importantly, who they are. I'm your host, John LeMay, and I'm here to highlight the complex and rich lives led by teachers with diverse interests, identities, and stories. Hello. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. My guest this week is John Boughton, referred to by all who know and love him as J.B. J.B. has just finished up a six-year tenure as an upper school English teacher at the Pennington School, where he also served as my department chair and a very dear mentor and friend to me. This fall, he will return to teaching in what he considers to be his home state of New Hampshire as he joins the English faculty of Proctor Academy. JB is one of the kindest educators that I've had the pleasure of knowing, and I think you'll feel that positive energy come through in our conversation. We talk about JB's rich and dynamic journey through his adolescence and through his career as an educator. JB discusses his belief in the inherent complexity of his students' lives and how he tries to be mindful of that as he interacts with them in the classroom. And we unpack the idea that educators should bring who they are to the classroom and allow that to inform their teaching. Just a quick production note, we recorded this conversation remotely, and JB was outside enjoying a lovely but slightly windy New Hampshire afternoon, so if it sounds like he's caught in some wind at certain moments, that's because he is. Alright, if you found yourself enjoying what we're doing with Welcome to the Teacher's Lounge, please consider recommending the podcast to someone you know, whether they're in education, or if you just think they might find the conversations interesting. Additionally, please consider taking a minute or two to rate and review the podcast on iTunes or the Apple Podcasts app. The more engagement we have on that platform, the greater the visibility of the podcast and the higher chance we have of reaching other folks. With all that being said, I hope you enjoy my conversation with JB. Hey JB, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Thanks John, I'm glad to be with you. Awesome. So what I'd like to do to have you begin is cast your mind back, go into the deepest recesses of your memories, um, and go back to your first day of school, by which I mean um, your first day of teaching, and remember what you can to the best of your abilities. Um, I realize it was uh, a little while ago, and it might be tough to remember some aspects of that, but I would just love to hear like what you can remember from that day or that point in your life. Wow, it's remarkable. I perfectly remember March 1st. 1993. That's great. Um, because I decided I was so lucky to be coming in as a maternity leave replacement uh, at Kent Place School in Summit, New Jersey. And I had decided as we were doing The Great Gatsby, which then as, uh, as then as now has always been my favorite book since I was 14, um, decided I would begin my class with a lesson in hermeneutics, which, you know, I'm wishing we weren't just on the podcast because I'm confident I would have to spell that word out and <laughs> certainly uh, define for most people the idea that it's the process by which we make meaning. But literally, I like etymologically parse the word with Hermes being the messenger sure. god and moving back and forth between, you know, writer's intent and audience receptivity. And genuinely, my abiding memory of this whole thing is just how patient those juniors <laughs> at Kent Place were for putting up with this kind of high-level collegiate lecture from sure. this, you know, callow uh, 29-year-old uh, just getting going. Did you realize in the moment or after you had done the lesson that it was just not 
like it wasn't really connecting or wasn't like the right or did you find that it actually did connect and you had success with it? Uh, you know, I think for for probably three students, there was a hook that um, gave them something. And I've done some iteration on this ever since while kind of, you know, self-effacingly talking about kind of pitching it too high. Um, yeah. You know, I think students, some students, as I was, um have just been badgered by the idea of authorial intent and um, you know, so, so hermeneutics can be a really um, liberating thing for a student to learn about when he or she starts to realize that there's such a thing as reader response criticism or that his or her personal experience can inform kind of a critical framework that a student can bring to a text. So, right. you know, maybe right church, wrong pew, uh, would be the way right. to describe that um, approach. So yeah, as I said, on some level, it was a miscalculation, but um, I think I saw it in the moment for what it was and said, okay, aim too high. Next time, you know, try to aim it a little bit more pitched all different ways. I do remember yeah. using the board though, and I thought that was an impressive thing. I was in this, uh, you know, kind of musty pre-renovation classroom uh room 24 on the second floor of uh <laughs> the main building at Kent Place so uh I have good memories of that space was it a chalkboard it was absolutely a chalkboard uh, kind of perfect. greenish in color my uh desk that you know sort of looks out over the parking lot you know over the driveway as people are coming in and out it was it was a lovely way to begin my career yeah you were hitting all the marks yeah what else can you remember from that day um, you know, as I said, I remember a pretty earnest group of young women. Um, Kent Place is a girls' school. Um, and so uh, I think they were more interested in my kind of real-world stories. I think I, I also came to learn on that first day pretty early on that the way that I was going to make it as a teacher was to be able to bring personal stories and real-world application and experience to bear on what we were talking about. So they were kind of interested in why I had left my magazine publishing career and, you know, what I was hoping to get from teaching. And, uh, you know, I think sometimes you could go, oh, boy, that's off. That's off lesson plan. That's not exactly where you were aiming to go. But, you know, it's about the learners in the room. And I think, um, I guess, to circle back to the other thing that I 25 years, 26 years later might know differently, it's just the idea that at the beginning, when you're starting out as a teacher, you're just so interested in delivering whatever it is that you need to deliver. Whereas I think the older in the profession that you get, the more you realize it's about the receptivity of the learners in the room and kind of, as you were saying, reading what was actually happening. I'm not convinced right. I was actually reading what was happening in there. Sure, sure. Well, and it, I would imagine, I'm sure we'll talk about this later, but I would imagine that feeling that you should bring like some aspect of your real world experiences or your real world stories like to the students or to whatever lesson you have or just doing it in place of the lesson is something you probably still carry with you to this day, right? Absolutely. Uh, I'm totally subscribed to Parker Palmer's uh, statement that we teach who we are, you know, mm -hmm. um, let your life speak. And so um, I think learners respond to teachers who are vulnerable, teachers who see themselves as students themselves and who are not afraid to say, oh, I don't know, let's let's check that out, or I'm going to have to get back to you on that. Um, I, I think it's one of the saddest observations I would make after 25 years is 
the number of times in which I say, oh, I don't know, you know, has dropped, has diminished dramatically. And that's not because I've gotten any smarter. In fact, right. I think I've lost more brain cells, uh, <laughs> certainly lost more memory. Um, and so I think we just learn ways to, you know, go down familiar paths much more easily than we might like. Yeah, of course. When did you realize that you first wanted to be a teacher? Or rather, I should ask, when did you first realize you wanted to be a teacher? Yeah, I always laugh and say, you know, to my students that I was the last person in this room who ever imagined he might become a teacher. Like I was all about, I'm going to go into some kind of leadership job, make a lot of money, be in New York, you know, have that whole bright lights, big city kind of life. And I, I tried it out for seven years. Um, and, you know, as much as a cliche as it is to me, um, I still really find this to be an abiding conviction. It's still relevant today that, you know, after seven years, um, I felt like in 1991, 92, that I, I knew, you know, 93% of everything I was ever going to need to know to make six figures and live and die in the suburbs in my magazine publishing, consumer magazine publishing job. And I didn't want to spend the next 40 years getting to that last 7%. Of course, you know, the callow irony in that is about five years later, the Internet became a thing and right. magazines are entirely digital. It's an entirely different business. Um, it would have been completely a ride if I had chosen with a huge learning curve and I had chosen to do something else. So when I found myself reading The Grapes of Wrath on the train instead of Advertising Age or the advertising section in the New York Times, I knew that's when I was casting about looking for something else. And teaching English felt like the right calling to me. Interesting. What was that, uh, what was that transition like for you? Well, it was, I was fortunate. We had just bought a house. Um, I was married maybe a year at that point. And I was fortunate enough to be able to figure out a way to kind of take a self-funded um, transitional period, kept the house, went back to teacher's college, um, kind of as a mid-year student, non-degree, having applied at the same time for full-time status for the following year. So I was taking classes in New York, commuting in two nights a week, and you know, learning a ton about teaching, teaching Sunday school at the local church, and trying to figure out how to interact with adolescents. And um, so what I ended up really just lucking into through a lot of information interviewing was, as I said, this maternity leave um, story and um, the opportunity to work for an amazing mentor, um, somebody called Jane Cole, who um, unfortunately died a few years back um, from cancer. But uh, when I talked with her on the phone about coming into interview, she sort of says, oh, well, fine, I'll look for you. I'll be the man on the corner smoking two cigarettes. It just like <laughs> throws that out of nowhere. And I'm like, oh, very good, Daisy. I'll see you. Right. And she, you know, I'm convinced <laughs> that was the moment when I was able to pick up on this kind of obscure reference to Gatsby yeah. that, uh, that she knew I might have some chops. <laughs> I don't know. I felt really lucky. The whole thing felt incredibly gracious. And I have to yeah. say, um, as you know, touchy-feely as it sounds, I have felt Jane Cole's spirit hovering around so much in the last sure. year uh, in particular. It's just been really nice to reclaim some of that influence as I kind of get as deeply into my career as she was when I knew her. Yeah. Well, it feels great to be able to go back to your roots, like whatever that might look like, like at any point in your life, like whether it's the root of your teaching career, like your childhood, your teenage years, whatever. But being able to revisit that is 
as someone who isn't very far removed from you know any of my roots really um even even as someone like that i still think about that a lot and like when it feels like you've come full circle in something or when you can feel like the influence of something even when it's like way way after the fact well you and i've talked about um a really formative ninth grade teacher english teacher whom you had if i'm remembering correctly yes and i'm remembering a 12th grade english teacher who you know literally gave up a lunch period every week to sit with me as talented as I thought I was, um, she saw areas that really felt that she felt like needed significant increasing. Um, again, a story I always tell on myself uh, to students, which I hope is, is not um, inappropriate. I, uh, there were 25 students chosen for AP English Lit at Fairfield Prep uh, in 1981 for the 81-82 year, and Mr. Wallace came to me um, as the chair of the English department. He came to me and said, uh, well, JB, you know, we've got 25 and you're number 26. He said, I, I'm really reluctant to take a chance on you. You've got a lot of talent and you don't work very hard. And so oh I'm like, God. well, okay, I promise, you know, I really want this class. I'll, I'll do it. So literally this poor woman, Lady Alice, had 26 of us. I'd like oh, to God. hope we were in two sections, but I don't think so. Right. Um, at any rate, you know, that decision, I mean, here I am an English teacher, like changed yeah. my life, that class. Um, yeah. So I guess I, I hearken back to um, kind of standing on the shoulders of giants and, and thankful that I had such a dedicated um, senior English teacher. Yeah. Well, that, yeah. And that will definitely tie into something we'll talk about in a little bit. I'm curious about, was it the, you you knew that you wanted to transition into teaching from your magazine job, or you knew that you wanted to transition into something involving writing or literature and teaching English was like, felt like the right fit. I guess I'm curious about like what, what came first, like the English aspect of it or the teacher aspect of it? Yeah, I think that's a really perceptive question. I honestly was one of those, probably the hermeneutics uh, example indicates that. I think I was a late bloomer intellectually. And um, so I got really caught up in the literature, the writing, you know, the, the technical aspects of the craft were much more interesting to me than the teaching piece of it, which is kind of ironic because I think I spent a lot of time in my high school years going, oh my gosh, I could do this so much better. And I, you know, right. like if I were in charge, I would do that, blah, blah. Um, and so, you know, even though a lot of my later interests have revolved around the best ways to reach students, um, you know, with the whole student-centered learning initiative that we took on at Pennington, um, I would say a lot of what initially impelled me to become a teacher was just a desire to jump into um, the books. I mean, again, for me, it's a cliche. I hope it's fresh to you. Um, I always say that um, I have the greatest job in the world because when the kids get me down, I've got the books. Yeah. And when the books get me down, I've got the kids. And yeah. I think the, that symbiotic relationship is really, I try to keep it as close to 50-50 as I can, um, even though certain sections over the years will probably remember that I aired more on one side or the other, depending <laughs> on who was sure. in the room. Right, right. <laughs> I've never actually heard that before. That's great, though. I, lo I love that. I love that. And it definitely taps into the way that I feel um, a lot of the time in terms of like balancing, because I very much identify as someone who went into it for the love of literature and writing yeah, um, and less so for the love of, 
working with young people or the desire to work with young people. Yeah. It was just kind of like a nice bonus or a thing that I knew I could do as a kind of like a, a vehicle to explore literature and just have my life surrounded by by books and writing. So I'm always kind of thinking about like which part I'm playing into at any given time and whether like the love of literature is being overtaken by working with young people or, you know, vice versa. So that's kind of a, a really interesting way to, to look at it. And now it's something I will probably steal from you and use and may, may or may not um, attribute it to you. Uh, fair enough, John. That is in the public domain. It's been <laughs> said so many times now that... Uh, sure. But, you know, I guess I'm reminded of wanting to just return to that Parker Palmer quote um, about teaching who we are because, you know... So many times you hear heads of school just extolling, oh, that person's a kid magnet. Or so many times in independent schools, you know, the coin of the realm is, well, what's your relationship with students? You know, are there students revering you? And sometimes those charismatic teachers can get into a lot of trouble because they don't have the right boundaries in place. Sure. And the other side of that is, you know, the world needs teachers who are passionate about their discipline as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, I hope you never feel marginalized or questioned on, you know, where you are relative to students, provided you're continuing to hone your craft and, and your sure. love of um, and knowledge of the literature and writing. I mean, you are such a great practitioner and modeler of writing mindfully and reflectively and, and thinking and asking hard questions that you should definitely keep that as a part of who you are. Oh, well, thank you. I as appreciate teacher, that. I mean, of course, you can yeah. as who you are, but right, as a teacher, right. you know, we can't put our light under a bushel. We have to teach yeah. who we are. Right. And it does take all, it's a cliche, but it does take all types, yeah, right? Like exactly. a school should be filled with people who have different approaches and different um, values in the classroom. And, you know, we should all share certain values, but inevitably there are going to be people who, you know, will veer into more of one end than the other, which is also something I want to talk about later. So make a mental note. Um, I'd love to go back to, um, to what you were like as a student. Mm. Uh, you can go sort of as far back as it makes sense. High school tends to make a pretty natural starting point, but if you want to go back further, um, please, please do so. But I'd love to hear about what you were like um, as a student and as a learner. Well, I'm grateful for the opportunity. I mean, I think I'm lucky because I have a really good memory of um, a very happy early childhood. And, um, you know, not to say that everything was, was rosy throughout my schooling life, but... Um, I do remember loving books and having a very imaginative life as a young child because I was what's called a youngest only um, in that, you know, even though my brother and sister loved to uh, badger me with the idea that I was a mistake, <laughs> you know, my parents right. <laughs> swear to, you know, extremes I don't even want to go into, you know, uh, that they absolutely had wanted me and sought me as uh, their creation and so on and so forth, uh, you know. I, I just cringe whenever we have these conversations. Um, right. But um, at any rate, that meant that, you know, my folks were quite a bit older when they had me. And uh, I'm confident that my mom had other interests and other things in addition to being a loving and nurturing uh, parent. So, you know, lots of afternoons in my room, reading, playing with uh, little toy boats on the floor. I don't know what this has to do with teaching, except... I think, you know, we want to be cultivating students who are imaginative and to the extent that um, we can learn how to generate new worlds for ourselves, that's something to be celebrated. Um, I went to one of the best public school systems in the country. Um, again, you know, I own and talk often about the level of privilege that I had um, 
growing up in Darien, Connecticut. And so, um, you know, small classes, highly educated teachers, families who were involved. I mean, a lot of the things that impelled me to want to go into the independent school world were present in my public school system. Um, and so they had a program um, where they did some tracking and the reading track, probably because it came early to me, um, allowed me to go into sort of an accelerated place in third grade and a remedial place in math. So, you know, a continuing pattern and a little dose of humility go a long way. <laughs> sure. uh, the SRA cards um, that uh, Walter Kern writes about in Lost in the Meritocracy, which John Daves and I um, taught in AP Lang this year. Um, you know, I remember racing through those cards uh, in the same way that Kern talks about in that book. Um, what, what were the SRA cards? You know, I honestly don't remember. I think you'd read things and then have to do like reading comprehension and vocabulary kinds of matching, um, gotcha. you know, multiple choice kinds of stuff. Um, in Kern's case, he talked about some kind of competition for who was going to get the furthest in that you right, know, third right. or fourth grade curriculum. I, I don't remember that. I do remember being pulled out for kind of accelerated or enriched reading. I, I can't even remember what it was called, but uh, it's just one of those interesting things because it did, for somebody who was pretty outer directed, other directed, um, and relatively insecure um, relative to how he stands against things, like to be say, to have somebody say, oh, you're good at reading, um, this is an area of strength for you, really helped you know, me boost confidence and um, you know, so I, I really kind of dug into that and, you know, just continued um, up until eighth grade, um, you know, reading all the young adult stuff. My mom's a librarian and my dad was a salesman. Ah. And so I always joke that I, I clearly got that full, you know, um, nature versus nurture. I got the nature part, <laughs> uh, the gene pool with the librarian mom and the nurture part with my dad being good with people. So sure. uh, being outgoing and all that. So fast forward, uh, my brother and sister had had some trouble with kind of the openness and um, relaxed nature of uh, discipline in the early 70s when they were in high school. So my parents were bound and determined not to make the same mistake with me. So they shipped me off to the Jesuits at Fairfield Prep, um, mm. where, um, as I said, Honors English was my home for four years, um, but I sort of hacked at it. I, I can't say I, I worked to fulfill my potential. I just kind of rode on whatever natural talent I had um, and was pretty much a BB plus kind of student for most of high school. What really woke up for me junior year was the integration of American literature in the junior honors English class alongside my U.S. history class and really kind of an American studies approach that then ended up guiding um, who I would become as an undergraduate at Dickinson. Um, and so I do love to talk about the interdisciplinary connections between American Lit and American history as being the kind of awakening intellectually for me to right. realize that I could integrate those um, humanities, discrete disciplines. Um, that was kind of when I woke up. But of course, by then the, the die was fairly well cast, as I said, kind of bumping along as a you know B student and not lighting it up in a a course of, uh, you know, in a school of 880 boys. Right. Um, but uh, was lucky that had some friends who were pretty sophisticated in the college market um, convinced my parents to um, send me to a private college counselor, um, Howard Green, and um, he found Dickinson for me. And um, that really was a terrific fit. 
um, the best thing educationally that happened to me at Dickinson was finally kind of um, alighting on the student newspaper. Um, I had been the arts and features co-editor of the uh, Fairfield Prep Soundings my senior year, wrote a lot of very forgettable Grateful Dead album reviews. Um, <laughs> but that did convince me that I had some talent and love of writing on deadline, writing about the arts. Um, so I took that to Dickinson and got involved my sophomore year as the arts and features editor of the Dickinsonian. And then junior into senior year, I was editor in chief. And that still remains the best job, uh, the college newspaper editorship. You know, even though I was working basically a 40 hour a week job, it right. was so much fun to manage a staff and put out a publication and uh, make hard decisions. And that was a transformative experience for me, probably as wow. educationally enriching as um, even some of the great seminars that I took as an American right. studies and English major at Dickinson. I'm struck by what you said about the integration of American history and American literature, like the way that that sort of, I think the term you used was awakened you, like intellectually. Um, I wonder if that has something to do with like why, like going back to your first day at Kent Place, like bringing in like the hermeneutics and sort of like really, you know, bringing the kind of the heavy stuff, the intellectually heavy stuff to students and something that I know that you continue to do, right? Like you continue to challenge students and really give them things that, have a lot of intellectual weight to them. And I wonder if that's at all like driven by the fact that you were awakened by that and the fact that you know you had teachers who delivered this this kind of stuff to you and that really for some reason hit you at a time when you needed to be kind of hit by it. Um, I think about that for myself, like even as someone who has always loved literature, I've always loved reading, like I loved it when teachers would, really bring that kind of stuff and would assume that we that some of us at least like would enjoy it and would be able to run with it and not just saying like oh well it's just high school so we should just only talk about you know characterization day in and day out even though that's an important thing to talk about um just like kind of not not still sticking with like the basics of like high school english classes um that's just something that, that really struck me and i wonder if that's partially informed by like your um own awakening at that moment yeah, I just always wanted my education to be practical. And I think yeah. that um, what's interesting to me, even as a one-time English leader, is still trying to figure out, you know, what exactly justifies the amount of curricular time that we put into the study of literature, even though I recognize that it's, you know, equipment for living, um, you know, and, and the opportunity to assess our own lives and others' lives and the experiences of those who are both similar to us and different from us. Um, you know, I continue to want mental Velcro. Um, I, a lot of my adult life has been about trying to do practical things, carpentry, boat building, you know, tried my hand at a lot of different things and learned that I had better not lose my day job because I have no talent whatsoever with my hands. But <laughs> um, I really admire those who do. And um, so I guess I'm always looking for that mental Velcro, that thing that kid like hermeneutics that a, a kid can take with them and say, okay, I'm only going to look for mediator characters in literature. When I, yeah. I mean, not, not that I'm only, but that that's going to be my primary interest is I want to see who's on the margins. I want to see who's moving between the worlds, those liminal characters. Like if you give kids some language like that, yeah. maybe something awakens in them. Um, and it's very empowering for them as well. Yeah. The human heart in conflict with itself. You know, William Faulkner 
says that that's what literature you know should be about and mm -hmm. i think that's a really powerful concept that you can apply to all kinds of books yeah that's great i love that going back to what, what you were like as a as a student um something that you and i have talked about and I, i've heard you talk about with other folks is kind of talking about like some of like the social stuff that was going on with you i don't know if it was in high school specifically but i know it was something you battled like in adolescence in terms of um, like dealing with bullying and stuff like that. I'm curious about like that aspect of your of your experience as a student and how that impacts you as as an educator and how that makes you conscious of of certain things that others might not be as conscious of. Yeah, I mean, I don't live up to the ideal, but um, I really, at my heart, believe that kindness is the most important thing that we as teachers can bring to the classroom. I mean, People say again and again, people are not, kids are not going to remember 20 years from now what it is that you taught them, but they will remember how you made them feel. And yeah. it's not to say that I'm successful 100% of the time in making kids feel heard or known, um, though those are certainly my, my goals. Um, I think, yes, being bullied in a boys' school, um, really highly athletic, testosterone-driven kind of culture in an era in which the mantra was boys will be boys, um, you know, pretty, I mean, not pretty, incredibly systematic hazing and bullying happening at the train station in Fairfield, Connecticut. My parents bring it to the school. The administration has no interest in it. Well, it's happening at the train station. It's not our responsibility. Mm -hmm. Yes, you're waiting for our school bus. And yes, the people who are bullying you are other students. But when it happens off campus, we have no control over it. And you know, it was one of my first experiences of, oh, my God, I can't believe like the, the level of injustice in the world, um, which I know, you know, crying your milk a little bit. Um, people deal with a lot harder stuff than what I was dealing with, but a little overweight, um, a little spoiled, a little full of himself. Um, I was all those things, a little entitled, probably. And so I think I was an easy mark, somebody who really just wanted to fit in and kind of go along and get along. Um, and so it really wasn't until I carved out an alternative identity for myself and really embraced the kind of writer, artist kind of um, persona, uh, which is a part of me, um, throughout the second half of high school that really made a difference. But I try to be on the lookout for kids who are struggling with the social stuff and I'm especially intolerant of people making other people feel bad. Um, right. The best thing that's happened to me in the last seven years is getting a hearing aid because uh, there, I'm sure there were years when people were saying things under their breath that I to each mm -hmm. other that I wasn't able to catch. And I'm sure I don't catch all of it now, but um, I catch more of it. And, uh, sure. you know, really try always to deal with that stuff privately rather than a public dressing down. I mean, my intolerance is, uh, you know, only known to the perpetrator in a moment when it is out of the diffused, you know, situation, unless right. there's some imminent uh, violence um, occurring and obviously just trying to shift and move on when that happens. Yeah. Did you feel seen or heard by your teachers when you were in high school concerning some of these issues you were dealing with as far as being targeted and, and being bullied? I know you, you, you spoke to like the administrative failures in dealing with it, but were there teachers who you felt that they were in your corner or was it just not something that they were conscious of or 
cared yeah. about. You know, it's really fascinating. I'm, I'm trying to sort out how far I can go with this. I, my defense mechanism, which, you know, you can't, you can probably hear in my voice that I'm smiling because it's just so ironic. My defense <laughs> mechanism was if I'm being seen as a wimp, um, I'm going to look tougher. So I took up smoking mm. cigarettes and that was kind of my like, look, you, you can't touch me. I got a cigarette in my mouth, you know? Right. Like, right. Um, and so unfortunately at the same time, 14, 15, I got addicted to them. And so I was figuring out my transgressive, uh, streak by finding places on a smoke-free campus to light up. Um, there was a teacher whom I will not name, um, <laughs> but I bless him for himself being a smoker, knowing that I smoked, used to give me his office and <laughs> let me hang out in there while he was off teaching his classes and or, right. you know, would hang out with me and we'd smoke and talk. And he was incredibly, um, you know, receptive to my stories. Um, this being the era that we all worry about with, you know, Catholic priests and um, uh, pedophilia and some of those terrible things that happened. Um, yeah. You know, this was all happening behind closed doors, um, but there was no, you know, he, it does not seem to me that he was grooming me um, sure. in any way, except being a compassionate and wonderful human being. And so um, I felt heard in his room. I felt that when I got tapped for this um, special applied psychology class junior year, where we were, it was like Pennington's um, peer leader program, where we were teaching ninth graders as juniors. We were teaching ninth graders health um, uh, mm. in in single or pair settings, um, their health classes. So um, I really responded to that opportunity to um, reach out to young people to try to um, kind of make sure that there was not a bullying culture continuing while I became an upperclassman. Because that was the right. dominant culture at Fairfield Prep was that the, the upperclassmen, the juniors and seniors were, you know, hazing the ninth graders in particular. And I just wouldn't stand for it when it, when it got to be an upperclassman. And I wouldn't stand for it in my friends and classmates either. Right. And you don't stand for it, obviously, as a, as a teacher. No. Um, I do have to be on guard. My wife, Carrie, always talks about my self-righteousness, so I do uh, have to <laughs> remind myself from occasion that uh, sometimes you need to take a deep breath with a, with a terrible temper. I, uh, I often say that no one in the world is as nice as I appear to be. Like That's right. <laughs> keeping down a lot of uh, you know, a hair trigger and um, frustrations uh, specifically about injustice. And yeah. uh, so trying to find the moments to, uh, to let those play. Later on, I want to go back to to what you just said about uh, about appearing nice and and being nice <laughs> and sort of inhabiting that status as like a quote unquote nice teacher or one of the nice teachers. Um, right. But first, I, I'd like to hear a little bit, and I think this works when we think about what we've been talking about in terms of like the way that you were failed on the administrative level and the way that you were also heard by some of your some of your teachers. I'm curious to know from your perspective how we are failing our students. Now, you can talk about that on kind of a macro level, if you'd like, in terms of how like the, the system, quote unquote, is failing students or how it's not serving them particularly well. Or you can think of it on a more of a micro sense in terms of how we as individual teachers in individual classrooms fail our students and what that looks like when we when we fail our students. 
Yeah, I mean, on the macro level, of course, we uh, there are many more people whom you could talk to who are better qualified than I to talk about the culture of testing, the sorting mm-hmm. hat, the, you know, I think the greatest disservice that we are doing a generation of students, and I understand the impulse behind it, the economic uncertainty um, that drives a lot of our anxiety around um, how to make value from these particular um you know, opportunities that lie before kids. But, you know, I think when we put too much emphasis on grades and AP scores and SATs, you know, we're, we're just training them to become cogs in a machine. Um, and I'm as guilty of it as the next person for having taught AP for as long as I did. Um, part of me would love to spend more time in schools in which there's less tracking, which is ironic given the fact that I said that in third grade, going into that accelerated reading program helped me to understand that I had talent in a particular uh, verbal domain. Um, You know, I think that that's a place where we're failing students. I think we're failing students when we don't take enough measure of their lived experience and their emotional health and their emotional intelligence. Um, I've often personally interested in trying to spend more time helping kids understand how to navigate relationships and how to, as I said earlier, have some tools by which to live or at least to know how to ask the right questions. I guess I'm speaking more of my own failings as a teacher where I find even in the student-centered classroom, if five seconds or 10 seconds of hang time go by and that question that a student has asked isn't getting any traction, I'm tempted to redirect the question or you know, kind of fill in um, I think that the extent to which we are getting kids to uh, be able to generate their own ideas and their own experiences and do independent work, that feels like a really important piece um, for their own autonomy um, because so much of schooling is still conducted under a command and control model. You need look no further than what time we start school in the morning to realize right. that we're not serving um, students that they're, be- you know, letting them reach their full potential um, when the research suggests that they would be much better served starting school an hour or two later. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm definitely struck by what you said about the emotional health aspect because I know that you're very, just in talking with you and, you know, you have shared some of like your teaching materials with me. I'm very struck by what you do in terms of really making sure that you know your students like as soon as possible and you really hit the ground running in terms of being able to, you know, I think you asked the question like essentially how can I best help you as an educator? Like I want to help you as best as I can. Like what do you need from me or what do you think I need to know? I think you asked some version of that of that question of your students often. Um, and that's something that I've always known that I should be cognizant of, but I'm struck by just how proactive you are about just knowing that as soon as possible and, and yeah, just really wanting to see your students as people who are on the road, hopefully, to emotional health and you wanting to play a role in that in addition to teaching them the, the skills they need to know in the classroom. Yeah, my, my mantra remains after all this, you know, um, Hamlet's words to Horatio, the readiness is all. I mean, I think when, mm. you know, that old saying that uh, the teacher arrives when the student is ready, um, that's, you know, you can only create a prepared environment and invite a student to join you on that journey 
um, by knowing him or her and figuring out which um, buttons to push, if you will. Um, but it uh, doesn't come to all of us at the same time. In my own experience, I'm grateful to those teachers who were patient with me um, as I was figuring it out. And I have a soft spot in my heart for those late bloomers. Um, I yeah. recognize that. Yeah. Um, I guess this is a good time to go back to this idea of of, of you being like the, the nice teacher. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, <laughs> well, it's just something that, you know, as someone who has had many conversations about you just in my in my time at at, at Pennington. Um, Poor you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and also conversations with people who have had you as as a teacher and, and all that kind of stuff. It's just something that people always talk about is just that, like, you know, JB is the nicest person you will ever meet. And I I'm curious about like what it's like to inhabit that space and kind of have that reputation like in the classroom. And I, I go back to what you said about um, talking about like, you know, all teachers have different different styles or different interests and different like, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and yeah, and I guess I'm just like curious if it's something that you're like aware of, if it's something that you kind of have always had as your identity since you started teaching. I guess I'm just like curious about your thoughts on that or if it's even th- something that you think of because I realize that some of these things like I'm sure half of us, most of us probably don't know what kind of teacher we are or what people are saying about us in terms of our like classroom demeanors. But mm. yeah, I'm curious about your thoughts on any of that. Well, it's funny because I do often ask the question usually sort of in the form of an anonymous survey you know do you perform better for a teacher whom you love or a teacher whom you fear and I'm, mm. I'm thinking back to uh, my last year at Breadloaf. i had a chaucer class um with professor fleming who was just you know a taskmaster really really demanding princeton professor mm-hmm. um and then i had romantic poetry and its inheritors which you could imagine i was just eating up <laughs> lovely Bob Pack, who was a poet himself, a longtime Middlebury professor. And, you know, I'm sure Bob, um, if he ever heard this, would appreciate that. There were times when I had to choose between, you know, being terrified that Professor Fleming was going to call me out for not having done my homework versus, mm-hmm. uh, you know, poor Bob that I'm like scanning Shelley, you know, 10 minutes before class. So um, I realized that there's a peril in being the nice teacher because it sometimes means you know you're not getting everything done for that person knowing oh he's gonna he's gonna be chill about it or whatever Mm -hmm. and uh, you know my point to students is always look get it done within the week you know like let's let's in the same way that our pediatrician used to say when we would talk about emma who's now a vegan not eating her vegetables he would say look you can't look at one meal at a time you got to look over the course of the week if she's getting enough vegetables in you're in good shape um, right. That's one of the approaches that I try to take with students, not to suggest that, you know, it's acceptable routinely to come in not having done your work in my class. It's more that stuff happens. It happens to all of us. And yeah. the idea that, um, you know, it's when it becomes a pattern, that's when you have to have the sort of intervention. Um, relative to being nice, it's, you know, it's definitely a persona. It's definitely part of the teacher identity that I've constructed for myself. There are times when I wonder whether it comes from a place of insecurity, when it comes out of a knowledge of the loneliness of the teaching profession and wanting to be in a a space of love. But Mm -hmm. then, you know, I'm just reminded not to ever put myself in the same, uh, you know, 
in the, in the same world as Mr. Rogers, but having just watched uh, Won't You Be My Neighbor, oh, me you know, too. even week. even Mr. Rogers questioned from time to time whether he yeah. was doing good work or whether his way of being in the world was reaching others. And I think in the end, you just have to be confident and comfortable with who you are um, as long as it creates good outcomes for the most people. Um, I'm sure there are plenty of, you know, diligent, I know for a fact, diligent, hardworking students who felt like they were always up on the work and sort of, you know, must be exasperated if I let the kid who clearly hasn't done the reading continue to hold forth without being challenged, you know. Um, but I like to think, well, maybe that kid needed that opportunity to process whatever it is that she's processing. I don't know. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm aware of it. Um, I don't know that it serves the most, but I think it does. Uh, at least, again, overwhelmingly in those anonymous surveys, students tell me something on an order of three quarters of the time. They perform better for teachers whom they love than teachers whom they fear. So, yeah, so be it. Right. So be it. I'd love to hear from you if you have any piece of advice or if there's something that you constantly remind yourself or have reminded yourself um, in your time as an educator, or it could be something that you've just been thinking about recently, especially as you head into a new a new position. Um, you, you've kind of tossed some things out here and there, so I, I guess any of those things are, are fair game at this point. But yeah, if, if there's something that someone found you and said, like, what do I need to bear in mind if I'm going to be a teacher? Or what do I need to bear in mind if I'm going to be an educator? What you might, what you might share. I'm throwing a lot at you, I realize, but anything that, that comes to mind is, is, is fair game to me. No, um, you know, I keep coming back to the idea that we just don't know what other people are walking around with. I mean, as open as I try to make my students uh, be able to be in my class or with me personally, um, you know, Life is a lot more complicated than any of us realize, um, and each of us is working on something. I, I'm thinking about how many times my daughter Callie, you know, rolled her eyes when I would say that, but um, it's really true. It's a way to help us understand that, um, you know, nobody wakes up in the morning and says, you know, I really can't wait to go stick a thumb in the eye of somebody. You know, yeah. every behavior is probably some level of you know, compensation for something else that's going on. And so as much as I try to judge the behavior and not the person, I also try to be pretty patient with the behavior. As long as it's not hurting oneself or hurting others, like let's, let's work with it um, as, and judge it as it is. So um, I guess that patience feels like a really important piece of being a teacher. Um, and that piece, as I said, of just realizing that you only know, you know, the iceberg, you only know 10%. I'm conscious that so little time we've uh, talked today about diversity and about um, identity and, and the kinds of um, extra baggage that people have to carry um, yeah. based on the social construction of their reality. Um, so again, I try to be open and direct in addressing some of those things, but I also try to be sensitive that, you know, People that that people of color are not here to educate me about what it's like to be a minority, and or, right. you know that that nobody's speaking on behalf of his or her identity group. Um, so I think that's another piece that, um, insofar as we take difference on directly, we do so also really gingerly and as aware as we can be of our own privilege and even entering into those conversations. That makes sense. 
what is something that you would tell you in on that first day of of teaching at Kent Place right before or after your your lesson on hermeneutics mm. what's the thing that you would you would grab him shake him around and say you need to bear this in mind going forward oh what a great question i guess that um when i reflect back on my kent place self i realize how much of that i was enthralled to the faculty culture there to the sort of dominant school culture there and that realistically i was probably only 60 percent me um, yeah. increasingly, mostly at Dairyfield, where I spent the majority of my career. Um, that's where I felt the most at home and the most kind of um, able to create that big fish in a small pond kind of um, environment that I seek for myself, at least in terms of my own um, self-image. And so I guess having the courage to be yourself and to realize that um, you can be kind and patient with yourself as well as with your students um, yeah. is a pretty important thing to do. I know at Proctor, my plan is to work harder on reflecting on the experience of the students as it's been lived and expressed to me by them, um, that I'm really hoping to take some more time. I, I'm conscious uh, in their faculty room there are two quotes on the wall. There, there are a whole bunch of quotes up on the wall, which I just so admire that they've got <laughs> that. When you're in photocopying and you're just standing there wondering what's going on, you're, you can read things like, you know, the single greatest predictor of a teacher in his or her first five years beyond preparation, content knowledge, even knowledge of how to deliver skills is the faculty culture. And mm -hmm. so I think I'm really eager to walk into a new place ready to learn from others about what it is to be there. Um, that's an important piece to be an observer as well as being kind of an experienced teacher. Um, yeah. My way is not the only way and it'll be fun to see how much they're gonna mold me. And uh, at the same time, I'm gonna remember that I need to be myself. Yeah, that's all, that's very encouraging. I think for, it's encouraging for me to hear as as a young teacher and as someone who's still sorting through a lot of this and finding myself just wondering sort of when it's going to end or if I should be looking for it to end. Just these questions about like where you feel most at home, how much you're learning. I think it's just you, you it's inevitable that when you're in a career for some amount of time, you're kind of looking for the moment when it feels like it's all falling into place and you just like have it more or less figured out that you know what your identity is in your career, you know what you're good at, but it sounds like what you're speaking to is just this kind of eternal feeling that there's room to grow. Um, every new place has brings with it new opportunities for growth, new opportunities to feel at home in different ways, to feel like you're bringing your best self to whatever the, the task might be. So it's I find that to be really encouraging um, just because I'm always I'm always thinking about these things. I think it was F. Washington Jarvis who said that, um, who was a longtime headmaster at Roxbury Latin in Boston, and um, wrote a great book that's just full of um, wonderful ideas for teachers. Um, they were really written as, I think, like sermons. He was an Episcopal minister, sermons for chapel at Roxbury Latin. But mm -hmm. what he, in effect, he said two things that I always remember. One is, um, 
you know, relative to the college presses, more or less that, you know, I don't know who's luckier, the person who gets everything he or she ever wanted in life or the person who doesn't. And so that idea of the sort of restlessness and the seeking um, really feels important to just stay open to that, that there's something good and healthy in seeing a setback as an opportunity for growth. A lot easier to say when it's the middle of the summer and everything is rosy and peachy keen. You're in um, New Hampshire outdoors yeah. on oh your my porch. Gosh. I'm just looking out on my yeah my porch at these amazing <laughs> storm clouds. Oh, Jarvis, what was the other thing that he was going to say that was so it was so pithy and right for what you were just asking about? Um, it may come back to me. I'm sorry. I probably was so busy thinking about the fact that it was Jarvis who said it. You're um, perfectly fine. Yeah. Uh, so I don't have a good answer other than as I said, to just, you know, just stay open to what's in front of you because everything is something to teach you. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. All right. So as we move into the, uh, into the end here, I have a challenge for you. If you are currently feeling up for a challenge. Sure. Excellent. Okay. So what I'm going to have you do is capture your essence as a teacher, as an educator, kind of pitch yourself as an educator in some sense to the best of your ability in 30 seconds so whatever comes to mind um i have a a timer here and i'm going to throw 30 seconds on the clock um and just i will let you know when there's 10 seconds left and uh besides that i think it's pretty pretty self-explanatory so if you're ready i'm going to count down in three two one go my favorite word is enthusiasm um in part because i have it in abundance for people in particular. Um, I'm reminded that I was trying to tell John, um, you know, really the key to growth in life. And it's just come to me that F. Washington Jarvis said that um, the only difference between you, who you are now and who you're going to be in the next five years are the people you meet and the texts you encounter. So enthusiasm, the God within one, embrace it and find your way. Perfect. It's amazing that the quote came to you right when you were on the uh, the epitome of of under (laughs) under pressure. I I think it's such a great idea that um, everything can teach you something and that we just have to stay open to those experiences. Yeah, that's great. All right. So I'm actually going to have you do that um, again, but I'm going to have you do it this time in under 15 seconds. Ah, here we go. This is a great uh, distilling. Okay. Yes, exactly. All right. So I'm going to count down in three, two one go enthusiasm for young people for texts for lived experience being in touch with the heart the mind the body the spirit these are the things that make educators memorable these are the things that make life worth living embracing the opportunity to be in communion with one another in a spirit of love affirmation critical self-examination and the activation of heretofore unknown talents. Perfect. Perfect. I actually messed up. It's supposed to be 10 seconds, but I you gave me a couple extra there. I think that was longer (laughs) even than 15. Okay. That's okay. That's okay. Um, The essence is still there. All right. Well, now I just want you to do that again, but I want you to capture your essence to the best of your ability in one single word. Enthusiasm. The God within one. That's great. So that's enthusiasm and then parentheses, the God within one. Yeah. And theos, you know, it, uh, it's a lovely word because that's the etymology of it is, you know, tapping whatever, however you want to construct God, but that, that kind of divine spark or that transcendent impulse. 
That's great. I love it. Yeah, me too. I love it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me, JB. Um, You've been a wonderful person to have in my corner as I navigate my first year at at Pennington. Uh, You've been a great mentor, department chair, all all that sort of stuff. So been wonderful to kind of reflect on take a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about through the entire year um, and kind of distill it in a single 45 50 minute long conversation i fully enjoyed every minute john and i'm grateful for the opportunity to uh, hold forth which is always a dangerous thing when an english teacher has had no students in front of him for two months uh that's right. what you're going to get, an outpouring of words, words, words. <laughs> <laughs> well, one might say I'm catching, catching you at your best. So oh, no, rested can... and ready to get started, and I hope you are too. Good luck yes. with the rest of your summer. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to uh, be with me. Awesome. All right, thanks again, JB. Take care. My thanks once more go out to JB for his time, honesty, and generosity. This podcast was created and hosted by me, John LeMay. Our associate producer is Emily Muller. Our cover art is by Katie Cooper. And our theme music is You Need a Visa by Really From. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you join me next week for another episode featuring another teacher and another story.